0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Listener supported WNYC Studios.
1: Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know wherever you get podcasts.
2: This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker.
3: This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. After six acclaimed seasons, the good fight is finally coming to an end. The finale aired this month, and the show's end is a bittersweet one, since in the minds of many critics and fans, it captured the tensions of our current moment like no other program on the air. It starred Christine Baranski as Diane Lockhart, a Chicago attorney who's a die-hard liberal coping with life in Trump's America.
2: I'm delighted to welcome Christine Baranski, who is not only a quadruple and probably more threat performer and a radical fashion inspiration. Um, (laughs) APPLAUSE but my personal guide through today's political hellscape.
3: Emily Nussbaum is a staff writer, and she writes often about television for the magazine. She talked with Christine Baranski at the New Yorker Festival back in 2018, kind of early in the run of The Good Fight. They spoke about the show's politics, the Me Too movement, and more. Baranski had a long career in theater before her breakout moment on television in the 90s as the hard-drinking buddy to Sybil Shepherd's character on Sybil. Here's Emily.
2: Christine is a 15-time Emmy Award nominee. She's won two Tonys for The Real Thing and Rumors. And she has a house in Connecticut where she gets to go skinny dipping at night. So basically, she's living the life. Welcome, Christine Baranski. Thank you. We were talking backstage, and we immediately went into a political rabbit hole. So rather than start with anything political, I'm going to start with a clip from Mamma Mia.
1: Now you're so cute I like your Um, Maybe we should all just sit around singing Abba songs. You know? (laughs) This is the first Mamma Mia, of course. The second one just appeared this summer, which I thought was a public service because (laughs) it... And then you go go from thinking, God, this is really kind of silly, and oh, God... Um, and then I realized the world really needs a couple of hours to still believe life is joyous and people get along and there's sensuality and a belief in love. And there's a, just a goofy innocence about the movie that's really, as I said, it's a, it performs a function now.
2: So I'm going to show another clip and we're going to jump right to the good fight. Um, and this trip is called Trump Derangement Syndrome. <laughs>
0: This is deranged. This is the Trump derangement syndrome. You're just as bad as you're
1: accusing him of being. No, I'm just done with being the adult in the room. I am done with being the compliant and the sensible one. Standing stoically by while the other side picks my pockets. While the other side gerrymanders Democrats out of existence. A three million person majority and we lost the presidency. A Congress that keeps a Supreme Court justice from being seated because he was chosen by a Democratic president. That's not what happened. That is exactly what happened, Julius. Okay, then. Take to the streets. Man the barricades. Because if that's what you really think, you've given up on the law. You, you've gone well beyond any... Actually, you don't know. I have a Smith & Wesson 64 in my desk, and I'm this close to taking to the streets. <laughs> There's an uncanny synchronicity to this character. As I watch this, my uh, my eyes are welling up in tears as I watch this, it's so of the moment. It's just brilliantly written, but it, it really puts intelligent, liberal-minded people who believe in the liberal democratic tradition in society and in their country, puts them in a workplace and lets them bump into each other and mix ideas and make intellectual arguments that are complex and not strident but that this woman this this Diane character for having fought the good fight all her life being a woman who probably followed Hillary into you know through Wellesley and championed her and had to you know knock on the glass ceiling many times and finds herself at this present moment living in a country where we're backsliding in terms of women's rights Uh, it's it's a, a marvelous role to play and it's a marvelous show to be on because the writers just kind of take us into the belly of the beast and let us live in that world and the good fight was supposed to be a show about Hillary being president instead it was a show about Trump being president which obviously transformed the show we shot that pilot the days before and the days after the election and then, of course, we had to rewrite the, the pilot because the presumption was Diane was going to retire because there are no more glass ceilings to break, and she, got, <laughs> she gets the house in the south of France, and then she loses her money. But uh, there was a speech at the very beginning where she's talking about, you know, there are no more glass ceilings to break. And it was written as a line, thinking that Hillary Clinton would, was going to be the president. And so that line was taken out, and we had to rewrite the, um, the episode. So now it seems like Diane got the house in the south of France because she didn't want to live in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> Every element of it just changes context. This,
2: is a, this seems like a good lead-in to a clip from Sybil. Um, so let, let's go to a clip from Sybil. Champagne for everyone at that table. <laughs>
1: Champagne at lunch? Oh, we haven't had that since... ...yesterday. Sybil, I have fabulous news. My prodigal son is returning. Justin is coming home for Thanksgiving? That's wonderful. I knew he'd come back. It's been three years, Sybil, without a word. You remember the night he left? I had just come back from that Save Our Furs benefit. He told me he hated my entire pampered, materialistic existence. Then he asked for two thousand dollars and left for peru maybe being away three years changed his mind or maybe the money ran out sybil i don't want to celebrate another 40th birthday without him i want to prove to him that i'm not something he has to run away from and i'm going to start by showing him the best old-fashioned thanksgiving we've ever had well except for that one in aruba with ivana trump and richard simmons (laughs) I've got an idea. Why don't you bring
2: Justin to my house? Everyone's in town. So I'm gonna make a good old fashioned Memphis Thanksgiving. I'm gonna use all four Southern food groups. Sugar, salt, grease, and alcohol. It sounds tempting, but I can't. Oh, come on. The whole family's gonna be there and you're
1: part of my family. Did I mention there'll be alcohol? I'd love to, darling, but I want Justin all to myself this weekend. I'm even gonna cook all his favorite health foods. Oh, one question. Is it still correct to call it brown rice, or is it rice of color?
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I watched all these old Sybils, and I have to say, it is a very surreal show to watch, because it is a real time capsule of the period, like even like the... Avon- Look at the
1: hair. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um,
2: what was that like the first year that you were making Sybil, because there really was this Complete and also, actually, I was wondering because you came as a, as a largely as a stage actress and television was in a very different stage. Oh and God, yeah, and, the, and there was still that
1: conflict of yeah. you know if you did television, you were giving up the theater. I mean, now it's everybody's doing everything, and actually, everybody wants a job on television because it's there's so much great writing on television. But at that time, I was seriously conflicted, and I was in my early forties by then, and I had just except for some films. I was really a theater actress and defined myself that way. Plus, they weren't shooting uh, shows in New York, the, for the most part. All, all especially sitcoms, uh, were shot in L.A. and I had two children and I didn't want to raise them in L.A. So I just kept turning down uh, pilots. And, and then they approached me about this and, and the character was meant to be a kind of ab-fab Joanna Lumley type and I was doing the math on how much it would cost to educate my two daughters and it seemed like the theater was not going to you know provide that kind of income so I began to seriously consider it but it was a really tortured uh, decision and my manager who's here today she'll tell you I mean I she really had to talk me into it and and the night before I left I almost called her in the middle of the night to say I just I just don't think I can do it. It's too big a step and I'm gonna, I decided not to move the children to LA but that we would try my commuting back and forth. So, but it was a huge, for some reason, a huge psychological jump for me to, to go to Hollywood and to do a sitcom. That said, if ever there was a sitcom that was right for me to do at that moment in time, it was that role. And in, in that show, <laughs> Chuck Lorre, Uh, wrote the pilot, and uh, I did accept it on the basis of the pilot, which just, I thought, this character, there's, you know, she's just got those great, you know, whip-smart one-liners. And the one line that sold me um, on the whole project was when Sybil's just out of the blue says, you know something, you know what's amazing, Marianne? And my response is, they make vodka from wheat. (laughs) 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 there's something there about that writing that I think I can work with this and I told Chuck that and he later confessed it's not a Chuck Lorre line it's his uh, writing partner Lee Aronson who's a recovered alcoholic but anyway yeah that character uh within 13 episodes I want an Emmy for that. And to that I attribute you know, I give it over to Chuck Laurie and the writing of that character. No one had seen that woman on American television. They'd seen Abfab, but she was the first out of the gate. Sex in the City came later and but the woman with the martini, who was sort of a badass in her outfits and her attitude, that was the first of its kind and boy, it was it changed my career. Um, those were really hard years I hated living alone in a hotel I missed my kids so desperately but um, it's it's why I'm here it's why I'm uh, had a relationship all those years with CBS there was a turning point in my career and who goes to Hollywood at 42 and you know is an overnight you know kind of star in that way that you become a star Because of television. I mean, I was a well-known theater actress, but not a celebrity, not a
3: star. No. That's Christine Baranski talking with Emily Spam at the New Yorker Festival in 2018. More in a moment.
1: WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial.
0: The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com.
2: I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, what we do here changes lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. I-, I wanted to, you talked about your long relationship with CBS. I'm wondering how people are responding to what's going on with Les
1: Moonves it is shocking uh, but that's where the culture is and it's a clarifying moment in our culture and i think it's going to be messy before it gets better but um i will miss less yeah i was wondering with you and your daughters who are lawyer and like
2: have you had have when you've had conversations about what's going on do you find there to be a generational difference between you and your perspectives on some of these issues or is that not not so true
1: only only slightly. Well, yes, I did get into one conversation with my daughter about men's behavior and how I was raised. I was raised, you know, in a Catholic background in an all-girls Catholic high school, and it was just instilled in us as young women that men were that way, that they couldn't control themselves after a certain point. I mean, I literally was told, <laughs> if, you, if you let a man touch you anywhere below the neck, he, he might turn into an uncontrollable wild animal, and it's your responsibility if you get pregnant. You have, to control the, you have to control the narrative. And I told this to my daughter, and she said, no, no is no at any point, at any point in the evening, if you, you know, no, no matter what's going on. I said, hmm, that's interesting. That's just not the way I was raised. It's, I would never go to a man's room late at night, I, I just assume that he, would, he might very well behave badly. And there's, so that, there's that difference, but uh, it's how we were raised. Uh, but I, uh, I'm proud of my daughters. I think they're very savvy about their feminism, and they're not strident, but they're clear-headed about it and pragmatic. And I, uh, one of my daughters did get a law degree, and she was really agonizing whether or not to go to law school, it's such a huge commitment, and I said, look. You can rail against the world, but if you want to change things, you've got to know how the system works. And becoming a lawyer, as Diane did, you figure out how the system works, however flawed it is, and then you figure out how to change it. But you know, blogging and, and uh, you know, railing against the machine with a lot of hyperbole, a lot of screaming isn't going to get us there. And I think at this moment in time for women, it's the most important time to be clear-headed, rational, as well as passionate and angry. Channel the anger in an intelligent, clear, forward-moving way.
2: It's so hard to talk about this stuff because I always th- I find myself feeling all those emotional feelings and wanting to
1: escape from it all. I um, you went to Oxford to study, right? In- <laughs> I did. My daughter, my other daughter, Lily, got a graduate degree at Wolfson College at Oxford uh, in anthropology. And when I took her there to um, you know help her move in, I was just utterly captivated by Oxford. And I. One of my deep regrets in my life is that I did not have a real college education, an academic experience in that way. I went straight to Juilliard, which, although it was a prestigious acting school, was trade school. You know, I learned the craft of acting, and I'm I'm happy I did, and that was my great passion. But I've always longed to go back to school and um, use more of my brain and my intellect. So there's a summer course called the Oxford Experience, and next year I'm signed up for the Duke of Wellington one w- w- a week and then the meaning of life the following week. So I'll do two weeks next me- week. the meaning of life just as yeah, a subject yeah, matter? Yeah, why not? not? Not like the Monty Python film. No, okay. no, just the meaning of life in one week at Oxford. <laughs> You should have me back next year. I'll, I'll have all the answers. <laughs> know a whole situation. So, this is it.
2: <laughs> thank you so much to everybody for coming, and thank you to Christine Baranski.
3: Emily Nussbaum speaking with Christine Baranski at the New Yorker Festival in 2018. The Good Fight had its finale this month, and you can stream all six seasons on Paramount+. Plus. I'm David Remnick. Hope you had a great holiday, and I hope you'll join us next time for the New Yorker Radio Hour.
2: The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Tunyards, Yards, with additional music by Alexis Quadrado. This episode was produced by Emily Botine, Brita Green, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Louis Mitchell, and Gofanin Putabuele.
1: Along with Adam Howard, Jeffrey Masters, Will Coley, Jenny Lawton, and
3: Michael May. And we had assistance from Harrison Keithline, Meher Bhatia, Amy Pearl, and James Napoli.
2: The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Charina Endowment Fund.
0: This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.